There we go. Try that again. Good morning, Harmony. Well, those of you that are too broke to have spring break or got back in time for church for spring break, um, looks like the rest of our, our family is out having a fun time, hopefully. Um, I wanted to start today by reading a, a thank you card that Miss Ava gave us. Um, uh, if you're not fully aware, Ava and Joe have had quite the last month. Uh, in the last month, they lost uh, one of their deacons from First Baptist Church of Elmendorf. Uh, Ava lost an aunt, and then she also lost her brother. Um, and so she just had a card that she wanted me to read to the church, uh, thanking you guys for the love. It says the awesome Harmony Family Baptist. Or, I'm sorry, the awesome Harmony Baptist Church fa- family. Thank you so very much for the care you showed in our time of grief. Thanks for the calls, the cards, the foods you sent, and thank you for looking after Joe while I was away. Most of all, thank you for your prayers. They were felt. Love you so much, Ava. Um, we're not a perfect church family, <laughs> by no means. But uh, the way that you guys show love in the times of stress is always amazing. Uh, thank you guys for being that family that not only shares each other's joys, but divides each other's pains. It helps each and every one of us get through these tough times. I also encourage you guys, please be praying for our sister Debbie. Uh, she had a ruptured appendix this week, uh, and so has been in the hospital dealing with probably the worst thing you can do in the hospital, which is just waiting for the doctors to figure out what the game plan is. Uh, So just be praying for her, uh, pray for her husband, pray for Maria, just pray for that whole family to be spiritually strong when the body is weak. Uh, May she know that she's not alone, her church family is lifting her up. I want to thank you guys for last week. Last week I was not here, I was at my brother-in-law's wedding. It was a very fun wedding. Let me tell you just one story. There are so many stories from the weekend. But we're uh, we're at the ceremony, and the ceremony was kind of stressful for us because uh, my wife was a bridesmaid, I was a groomsman, uh, Al, who can't walk, was a flower girl, Uh, the boys were ring bearers, which meant all five of us were supposed to be active during this event. And then what additionally was stressful for us is that, well then the rest of the ceremony occurred, me and Nicole needed to stand still up at the front while all of our young children sat in the crowd with people they don't really know, trying to be quiet. So we were kind of stressed about how all this was gonna go. It actually worked out well. The boys sat with uh, their grandmother, uh, so that worked out well. Elle actually went to Nicole, who held her during the entire ceremony in front of the church. So that was good. Uh, the thing that's wonderful, though, is no one will remember that. No one will remember that because about two-thirds through the service, the pastor started calling my brother-in-law, whose name is Harry Samuels. He started calling him Samuel. <laughs> and there was this awkward tension because the first time you said it, he said it, you're kind of hoping... Just one time mistake, he's going to get back on track. But then he said it a second time, and everybody at the church kind of starts looking at each other like, what do we do? Uh, The third time was at the beginning of the vows. So he said, Samuel, repeat after me. And of course, at that moment, you heard this booming voice shout out in the crowd, it's Harry. (laughs) And that was my beautiful wife. And the pastor just stood there, doing the headlights look on his face, I think for like a good six to seven seconds, which doesn't sound long, unless you're actually watching somebody talk. He just stood there stone-faced, and then profusely apologized and tried to make it through the rest of the ceremony. I told Harry, I thought it was unfortunate Nicole interrupted, because he'd always have kind of a loophole if he'd gotten through the vows, (laughs) that really Samuel committed those things, not Harry. Uh, his wife did not think that was funny, though, so. Um, it was good for me, though, because I can tell you I will be triple-checking every wedding I do from now that I have the names locked in and I'm ready to go. Uh, I share that with you not only to explain what it was last week, but because as we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we are hitting the chapter on marriage. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I, and I'm just going to say a caveat here while you're flipping there. I know that 1 Corinthians is not the easiest book for you guys to hear me preach at you from. Because 1 Corinthians is not exactly Paul at his most uplifting. It's Paul more at his, hey, get your act together. But I just want you guys to know, 
It is equally not as fun as a pastor to preach these sermons as well. There are many times where I'm like, oh, is that what's next? Really? Oh, great. They're going to love this one. But our job as Christians, our job as his disciples, is not to pick and choose the passages we want to read. It's not to pick and choose the messages we want to hear. It's to go through God's word as he gave it to us, to obediently and submissively listen to that word. And if it reveals things to us that we need to change or we need to look at or that we need to, to, to get out of our lives, then that's what we do. Because we're his disciples. He's the master. We're the servants. So it's his will. It's his way that we are consumed with. Now, as we've been going through this passage, and since we've had a week's break, let me just kind of remind you. The church of Corinth is a church that Paul planted in a Gentile location, meaning this was not a church built around Jewish tradition. So these people were very foreign to the morality of God. They were foreign to who Yahweh was. All the things that you and I have grown up in, and all the things that the Jews had grown up in, these people had not. Not only were they foreign to it, but the culture that surrounded them was about as pagan as could be. This was not a culture whose morality reflected any of the values that you would have seen in Judeo-Christian values. And so these people lived basically behind enemy lines, and all the culture around them was just constantly pulling them away from God. And so Paul had planted this church... And a couple years later, he's following up with them. They've written to him about some of the struggles they're having. And as we've gone through this book, we've highlighted three key things that he's been highlighting throughout the entire book. The first is, the church is united in the Word. So he first kind of got at the church in Corinth because they were arguing about silly things. Like, there are important things that you and I should discuss. There are important things that may divide us as Christians. But those are when you and I have very different stance on firm biblical things. What we shouldn't be dividing over is silly things. We shouldn't be dividing over worship style. We shouldn't be dividing over how the building looks. We shouldn't be dividing over what color carpet that we get. Right? We should be only fighting and arguing about those things that have to deal with the word. And what pulls you and all of us together is not you and I saying, let's be united. What pulls all of us together is all of us running as hard as we can towards Christ, all of us running towards the Word, and then finding, hey, we're all going the exact same direction. And so throughout this book, he's been calling them, be united in God's Word. You've got to know it, and you've got to strive to live by it. The second thing he's reminded them is, you're at war with the world's culture. You as Christians cannot be hip, cool Christians. It's not possible. You cannot put one foot in the, the world of, you, you live in, the culture of this world, and say, I'm going to be part of this, and put one foot in God's kingdom and say, I'm going to be the successful person in both of these places. Why? Because they're built off completely opposite things. The culture of the world is about power, it's about lust, it's about sex, it's about money, it's about yourself. The kingdom of God is not about any of those things. Amen. So you as a person cannot successfully live in both of those cultures pursuing both of those things. If you do, you will be divided. You'll be torn. Which is why, brothers and sisters, we have so many Christians that are called hypocrites. Why? They come to a place like this on a Sunday morning. They act like they're supposed to act in a church. And then the rest of the hours of the week, they look like everybody else. We are called to stand out from the crowd, to be holy or set aside for the purposes of God. And what reminds us of that is that each and every day that we are outside of these walls, we have a culture that is pulling us away from God. So we must intentionally and purposely stand close to him and not let anybody pull us away. So we're united in the world, we're at war with the culture around us, and the third thing, we are always growing and serving. And so one of the biggest things that Paul is upset about as he writes to these people in Corinth is, it's been years since they first came to Christ. It's been years from that moment that they first met him, that they first received the word of God, and as he looks at them, none of them have grown. They're as immature, or maybe more so, than they were from that moment that they first came to Christ. And this is a huge point for all of us to understand because this is you and I making sure we get that the moment we become Christians, that's not the end of the game. That's the start of the story. Amen. 
I think it's an important part for us to discuss because the reality is I see on Sundays and on TV and in many messages around us, pastors and churches acting like the whole point is to get you to say the believer's prayer, take a dip in the baptismal pool, and then you're done. Your sign sealed, delivered, just sit on the sidelines and wait for that day to cash in your check. It's not how it works. The story of Christianity is not the story of you becoming saved. It's what do you do with that brand new life God has given you once you have it. And so for each and every one of us, what we should be aiming for, striving for, is that we look different each day than we did the day before. That when we look at ourselves a month from now, we would go, I am closer to God, I am more knowledgeable of His Word, and I am living in His will better today than I was a month ago. Because we're always growing. We're always maturing. If we don't see that happening, that's an issue. And so these overarching themes kind of address themselves with each topic that Paul has gone through. And now he comes to this part of the letter where he is discussing issues that the Corinthians have written him about concerning marriage. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see what Paul has to tell us here. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say this to the unmarried and to the widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And that husband should not divorce his wife. So let's break down a couple things we've talked about here. The first thing that Paul is addressing is that the Corinthians had seen marriage has a bunch of landmines in it. And we can relate to this. Is marriage in American culture a successful institution? Not widely, right? Now, you'll hear the typical topic is that 50% of marriages fail. That's actually not statistically accurate. It's more about 40% of marriages fail. But still, a high number. A high number of marriages do not work out in American culture. The Corinthians were seeing this as well. They were seeing a lot of the marriages that were around them were leading to sin. A lot of the marriages around them were leading to strife. A lot of them were causing pain and problems. And so a theory had developed to the church of Corinth that, hey, maybe the best thing is don't get married. Maybe Christians should just be single their whole lives. And so this was starting to develop as a theme in the church of Corinth that it was better to be single than it was to be married. And what Paul is addressing to us in the early part of this chapter is, is your marital status does not increase your spirituality. It is not more holy to be married. It is not more holy to be unmarried. There is no holiness boost from either one of those marital statuses. What Paul gets to is understanding what is God's call in your life. So Paul says, hey, at this time, Paul's not married. It looks like previously in his life he had been, but his wife had passed. Paul goes, hey, there is a beauty to being single. And that my entire focus, my entire energy, my entire time and money, everything I have can be solely focused on my pursuit of the Lord and the ministry at my feet. I'm solely dedicated to that. Because there is a beauty to that. And so he says, hey, if you're gifted for that, if that's something that you can do, awesome. However, 
If that's not your gifting, if you find yourself longing for companionship, if you find yourself lusting for the opposite sex, if you find yourself constantly at war with these urges and desires, then guess what? You're not gifted for singleness. Marriage is probably better for you. And so the point that he's trying to make to this church is don't become pharisaical. And what he means by that is people love to build their own laws on top of God's. Right? This is the whole thing that the Pharisees would do. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. Right? I want that to be a day of rest. They decided, we're going to define every which way and form of work that could possibly be there. Because their theory was, is hey, if, if we build a wall around God's law, and you don't break that, well then surely you'll never get close to breaking God's law. And some of us understand this. I, I understood this as a high schooler. In high school, my curfew was midnight. The first time I got the keys. Well, that first night I got the keys, I had to drop off a buddy, and we lived out in the country. And I did not realize that when he said his house was just two houses down this road, that that meant a 25-minute drive. So I drop off my buddy, and I realize I am going to cut it unbelievably close to getting home. I speed back. I run through the door. It's 11.59. I go, yes! And my dad goes, keys, now. And I said, Dad, what? I said, it's 11.59. I'm good. The curfew was midnight. He goes, that you were willing to come within 60 seconds of breaking my law on the first night that you got keys so as you do not understand the authority that I have given you. Give me the keys because you were one red light. You were one cop car driving in front of you. You were one old lady at the wheel. No offense, old ladies. From not being here on time. So while you want to go, yes, the reality is I don't see any respect in what you just did. So I gave him the keys, I gave him my license, and I wasn't allowed to drive for two weeks. So from then on, when it was time for me to go out with my buddies, here's how it would go. They'd typically pick me up. They'd be like, hey, well, you know, dad said curfew's at midnight. I'd be like, I'm being home at 11.15. <laughs> like, your dad said midnight. No, I will be home at 11.15. I'm going to get nowhere close to that midnight threshold at all. And that's how I thought. And to be honest, that's what the Pharisees did. And to be honest, that's what some of the Corinthians are trying to do. They're going, hey, we see a lot of people messing up marriage. So why don't we just make our own rule that says nobody gets married? And you can't mess up marriage. And Paul's like, guys, that's, that's dumb. That's done because, one, you have to be gifted to be single. And second, some of you, God is going to do unbelievably great things through your marriage. So there is no spiritual boost in these things. Your focus should be is what does God want to do in your life? And so the practical thing for each and every one of you is, is if you're looking at your marital status and going, hey, I'm single, or hey, I'm married, you should be asking yourself, what is God doing in those statuses? And if you're sitting there single, you should be asking yourself, am I single because I believe this is what God wants in my life? God has gifted me for this? This is how God is going to use me? Or are there other reasons that are putting you in that boat? The key is, is where are you with God and what is God doing with your marriage or your lack of marriage? The second thing he shares with us is, is in marriage, your body is not just your own. And so he talks to husbands and wives, and he's talking about the topic of sex. And what he's saying is, is look, God created marriage. God created sex. A lot of Baptists and a lot of non-believers get this view that God is anti-sex and that we are not supposed to have pleasure in it. Guys, that's not how he made it. God's pro-sex. He's the one that created it. He's also the one that made it pleasurable. The only thing with God is, is he believes that there is a context to which that is supposed to occur. And what he's saying is, is look, brothers and sisters, when you get married, part of this, besides the spiritual blessing, is that you do have a flesh that urges for things. And so husbands and wives, do not deprave yourselves of this unless it's an agreement. 
unless it's something that you come to terms together on and say that for this reason or this purpose and with us in unity, we are deciding to abstain from this. But what he's not saying is, is that you should use sex as a weapon in your own marriage. That you should go because I'm angry at you or because I'm upset with you or because something's not right. Guess what? That's not going to happen. He's saying you guys should resolve your issues. And in the resolving of those issues, there should be oneness both in spirit and in flesh. This is an important thing for us to understand because what it really pulls back to is not just this physical need, but the understanding of what marriage is. It's two becoming one. If you look at Genesis, if you look at Ephesians, this is the topic that he continually talks about with marriage. Two separate lives have now become one. They are united by God. In the marriage vows that we traditionally do, we say, I give to you all I am and all I have. Meaning there is no longer a distinction between us. And so for God, anytime a married couple takes one of the things in their life and goes, this is mine, you're not part of it. Immediately, God goes, that's not right. Now here he's using the topic of sex, but I will encourage you, look at this in all facets of your married life. I'm not telling you this is biblically wrong, but I have seen couples who separate their finances. And I have my money, and you have your money. I understand some people do that for budgetary reasons. They do it because it's easier to control things. But let me just warn you. Does that sound like being one? If in your financial life where you're saying my soul is now united to your soul, but yet I won't let you share my money, that seems weird. That seems like something's off. That seems like this concept of oneness has not fully been embraced. It seems like what you're still trying to say is there's me and there's you and only on certain things have we decided to be unified. You can do that, but just understand that's not what God's encouraging. What God has encouraged is marriage is to become one in all ways. This is why if you're not married, please listen. Really think about who you marry. I see so many young people who meet somebody that they fall in love with, that makes them feel special, that makes them feel sexy, that makes them feel wanted, that makes them feel all kinds of things. And because of that emotional high they're on, they avoid discussing all the things that we know will come. They don't discuss politics. They don't discuss finances. They don't discuss where they're going to live. They don't discuss if they want to have children. They don't discuss when they're going to have children, how will you discipline them, or what kind of school will they go to, or who would have them if you guys died. They don't discuss any of these topics. And while it's not important that you absolutely be in unison on all of those, it is important that for things that you know are coming, you at least go, are we even on the same page? Are we at least going to come to the same place of truth? Are we both going to go to God in those moments to ask what's going to happen or what's going to be done? The number of people that I have seen who know these major landmines are waiting for them and then they hope that by being married those will just disappear. Let me just tell you, getting married does not make the landmines go away. In fact, it will typically just make them bigger. Because guess what? Arguing about whether you will spank your children or not when your children are theoretical is a lot different than when you're staring at that child that you love and then deciding, are we spanking or not? That's a much more emotional conversation than the one that you had when there were no kids in your life. And so what we need to understand in this is, yes, the practical knowledge of what he's saying here about we don't withhold our bodies from each other, But we also need to see the more overarching theme of, in marriage, you're one. You're one. You're in unison together. That is a huge concept for us to understand. 
Now the third thing he breaks down for us, so one, we, we understand that uh, marriage is, is this concept that being married or single doesn't give us any kind of extra spiritual points. Second, we understand that when we are married, our bodies, and more than our bodies, anything else we have is not just ours, it's shared. But then this third concept comes up of spouses that become Christians should not leave their non-believing spouses. So let's jump into the word and let's look at this because this is, this is an emotional topic for many people. But God has his instructions on it and if we are his disciples, we've got to listen to what he's saying here. Look at verse uh, 13. He says, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not in bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So let's look at what he's saying here. What he is talking about, and this was very specific to the church in Corinth, because think, back then, the gospel's brand new. So you're not running into a culture where people grew up Christian, right? Jesus' death is recent, his resurrection is recent. And so for a lot of families, what was happening is the gospel is being shared to a married couple who are both non-believers. One hears the message, believes, has faith, and becomes a Christian, and the other doesn't. And so the Christians in Corinth were struggling with this issue, going, what do we do? I, I've become a believer. I have given my life to Jesus Christ. But I'm now married to this individual who doesn't believe any of these things. I should leave, right? And what Paul says is, no, you shouldn't. If you came into your relationship with God married, stay married. Unless... That non-believing spouse is unwilling to live with you. If a non-believing spouse looks at you and goes, no, now that you've made this, this covenant with God, now that you're united with Him, I won't be with you. If they say that, then fine, let them go. But if it's your choice, don't leave. And when he talks about this, this process of sanctification, what he's not saying is, is that if you're a believer and your husband's not, that your belief transfers to him. What he's saying, though, is that God can use you in that marriage to bring the gospel, to bring a visible example of God's love into that person's life. But what better example, what better way to share the gospel with somebody but than to have someone that you love and live with following Christ and displaying his love day in and day out. If there's ever going to be a better testament to who God is and what God can do in a person's life, it has to be that. And so Paul's not saying this is going to be easy, but what he's saying is, as a servant of God, you now see that you have an opportunity, you now have a mission given to you, which is to be the light of the gospel in that house. And your prayer is, is that light will shine in the darkness and it will awaken them to who God is. The other thing he says here about the sanctification of our children is again not saying that your belief or your salvation can be transferred to your kids, but just like you can be a gospel light in your spouse's life, so too with your children. Amen. Imagine that that believer would just go, well, I'm leaving. I'm leaving my non-believing spouse, I'm leaving my non-believing children, and I'm just going to be with my church now. Well, there's a family unit back there that could have been a mission field. There's a family unit back there that could have used the love and the light of God and had someone who was perfectly built to do such, but they've left. If that person is willing to have you stay in the family, do so. And notice, he's not saying that's easy. But brothers and sisters, here's one thing you and I, if we really are disciples of God, that we have to get over. Nowhere in these pages does he tell us this journey is easy. Amen. I don't know why so many Christians think we deserve comfort. I mean, just
Just pay attention to who you're following. Does anything about the life of Jesus Christ and the path that he paved look like his goal was comfort in his life? I mean, let's be honest. If anybody ever had the skill set to have a very comfortable life, it would have been Jesus. Can you imagine the power, the wealth that a perfect individual could have built in this world? Jesus could have the most comfortable life ever. He could have unbelievable riches. He could have created anything and everything his heart desired. He could have anything that this world or the other world could offer. And yet instead he made himself a servant of God and he said, I have a mission, which is to go into the darkness and be light. I have a mission to go into this world that has so much hate and anger and be love. And what I will do as a servant of God is I will sacrifice myself for these people. Comfort was never one of Jesus' focuses. And so brothers and sisters, if we're following in those footsteps, I'm not saying it's bad for us to have moments of comfort. I'm just saying it probably shouldn't be one of the top things that we're pursuing. The top thing we should be pursuing is how can I be used by God? Trust me, brothers and sisters, we have trillions of years of comfort awaiting us. Because when you and I get into that kingdom, when you and I get into those heavenly bodies, when you and I get into paradise where there is no death, where there is no sin, you and I will understand comfort in a way we can't possibly understand now. We will look back at these moments that we thought were so peaceful and comfortable here on earth and go, these were nothing. They were nothing in comparison to the comfort and the peace that we enjoy in paradise. And so again, comfort's not terrible, but it just shouldn't be the pursuit of your life. Your pursuit is God's will. And that's what he's encouraging these believers to do. If your spouse will keep you, stay. And every single day, be an example of God's goodness, God's love, and God's power in their lives. Continue on. In verse 16, he says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called an uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. And so again, what, what he's saying to us here is, is when we become believers... When we're given that freedom that comes from the the chains of sin being broken in our lives, our first focus is not to come to the structures of our life and break them. Our first focus is to go, now that I'm in this position, and now that I have the Spirit in me that's giving me power and giving me love and giving me self-discipline, how do I use those things where I'm at? How do I use those things where I have been put to spread the gospel and to do the work? That should be our first focus and our first challenge. Next point. If you divorce for any reason besides adultery, then you should remain single. Brothers and sisters, this again is a very difficult thing for us to talk about because the reality is our culture totally disagrees with this. We have so many in our culture who have grown up with a definition of marriage that does not come from the Word of God. They've grown up in places where their marriage was not a marriage in Christ. And in reality, we should expect this to become more and more of an issue in the church. In fact, I can just tell you as a pastor, it is. I regularly have people come to me who want to get married. And when I sit down and kind of talk about their past, we start to hit some roadblocks where it's like, well, we got to talk about this. Because I don't have the authority to marry you. I only have the authority on the behalf of God to marry you. 
And God is very clear about how he views marriage and how he views divorce. And so just to be very clear, God hates divorce. He hates it. Why? Because marriage to him is not a contract. Marriage to him is not two people who said, you know what, I like you. I like you a lot. I think it'd be really great for us to have a life together. Let's try this out. What God views this as is back to what we discussed before, two people becoming one. And the one who makes it one is him. So when you come to something that God has made holy, that God has made one, and you go, nope, we're ripping that apart. God's not a big fan of that. He hates that. And so we need to understand this because this, again, especially if you have young children or young people in your house, they've got to understand this because this is not what we're teaching the young generation marriage is. <coughs> Nowadays, we've got the whole order wrong. Right? You start dating. You date for a little bit. You sleep together. You sleep together long enough. You move in together. You move in long enough together. You might have kids. You do that and you go, you know what? Why don't we get married? And because we've mixed up all these things, there's no longer this significant moment where we go, hey, we've been dating. We've been friends who have been generating feelings for each other. I think we're ready for a drastic change. And then there's this decision, are we ready for something? And then boom, the whole world shifts. It used to be you'd go from seeing somebody on a regular basis to all of a sudden we're living together, our finances together, we sleep together, we're having kids together. The whole world's different. Now it's just this gradual progression which feels like you can take an off-ramp anytime you want. Anytime I want, I can just get off this train. And in fact, for a lot of people, we're starting to hear from folks who go, why even get married? They already live with them, already have kids. I don't need a piece of paper. And God's going, exactly, that was never the way this was supposed to go. And so nowadays we see more people divorcing because we see people going, hey, it's just another step in a relationship. Things don't work out sometimes. God's point is, marriage is so significant. It should not be one of those things that you go, well, I guess it just didn't work out. Divorce should feel like partial suicide. And in God's eyes, the only two reasons He gives us in Scripture, and trust me, let me just say this personally, I wish there were more. The only two, though, that are in the Word of God are adultery, and if a non-believer doesn't want to live with you anymore after you become a Christian. Now, why do I say I wish there was more? I really wish there was a verse that I could come to that said if your spouse is beating you, you should leave. I wish that was in Scripture. I wish it was in black and white. So that in those scenarios, we wouldn't have to look at 50,000 verses, look at the character of God, and come to a decision. I wish it was just laid out there. Yep, John 3.18. Take it, there it is. If they're doing this, get out. It's not there. And now listen to me. Please listen very carefully. I am not telling you that if your life is in danger, you should stay with your spouse. You should always protect yourself. I'm just simply saying that jumping right to divorce, that's not the guidance of God. The guidance of God is there are lots of steps in that process. And your church should be part of that. And they should be able to help you and protect you and guide you through that. But it's not just a clean cut, boom, done, move on. Why? Because God goes back to the beginning which says, if you guys were both believers and you came to me and I made you one, who undoes what I did? Who? And then what we miss is there's a ramification. If I decide, hey, I got married in God's eyes, and I got divorced not because of God's guidance but my own, well then coming back to God later and saying I want to get remarried, he may not sit there and say okay. In fact, what God says is if you dissolve a marriage for reasons that are not 
according to my wisdom, then I'm not going to bless another marriage for you. You've already shown that you didn't want to abide by this. You've already shown that you were unwilling to submit to this, and now you want to do it again. No. That's a really hard thing for us to hear. And trust me, I, I wish we could say that that wasn't the case. But all of this is for God to go, hey guys, this is a big deal. This is a huge, huge decision and it should be taken lightly. And if we're servants, what you and I have to understand is He knows better than us. And while it may be painful and it may be hard for us to hear these things, there is wisdom and there is truth in them. And if we have given our lives to Him, then we need to submit to Him. Now hear me on this because some of you well, maybe not some of you in this room, but some of you or people you know will hear this sometimes and go, I didn't know this and, and I've done these things. What now? Well, brothers and sisters, this is where we come back to the beauty that we have an unbelievably loving and forgiving God. There is no sin in our hearts that if we come back to God and we repent to Him and we say, God, I know this was wrong. I understand why it's wrong and I'm sorry. There's not a single one we can't lay at His feet that He won't wash over and make us clean of. But we do have to repent. That means we do have to acknowledge that we went the wrong way. We do have to acknowledge that we understand the right way. And we do have to show that we want to get right on the path with Him again. Now, brothers and sisters, there is no way for me I mean, I, there's no way in a single sermon series to go through every instance, every circumstance, every situation that someone is in. And so I encourage you, if you sit there and looking at your own situation going, man, I, I think I might have some issues here with this. Or I'm not quite sure how God would look at what's happened to me or what I'm planning. Let's talk. Let's talk and let's go through God's Word and let's prayerfully submit ourselves to His advice and His wisdom because He talks about this in many places. And if your desire really is to have God be the one who unites you to someone, if your desire is to be right with Him, then we owe Him the time to sit down and go through His Word and understand what He's saying about your specific situation. For most of us, we're probably sitting in a situation where our, our lives have already been decided on this. And so the big things we understand about this is when you're married, you are part of a God-made, holy institution. And to be honest, do you know what I love about marriage? Many of the things that are in the Bible came after sin. Right? A lot of the things that you and I are part of came in the broken world after sin had wreaked havoc. Marriage isn't one of those. Marriage was an institution created by God in the garden when everything was perfect. I love that. That means this isn't something that is a, a cause and effect relationship of sin. God didn't give us this to, to survive. God made this part of His plan from the very beginning. And when we're in a marriage, what we realize is we're not just part of a love between each other. We're in a relationship that also glorifies and is built on the foundation of God. And to be honest to each and every one of you out there, if you're married, I don't know how you make it if you don't have Christ at your foundation. Because let me just be real. You're a sinner and your spouse is a sinner. So you're both mess-ups. Then you're thrown together in tight confines and dealt with the most complicated issues in life. And when you do that with two mess-ups, guess what's going to happen? More mess-ups! So if you don't have this unbelievably perfect, loving God coming and putting Himself in the center of that, and giving you wisdom and guidance and patience and kindness and all these things that only He can give, I don't know how non-believers do it. I don't. 
It's him at the center that shows just how beautiful his love is. And if you're sitting there in a tough marriage, here's my advice to you. Remember that while you may not be able to have the perfect relationship with your spouse, you can glorify God in the way that you fulfill your role. Later this week on Wednesday, our Bible study groups are going to be going through Ephesians chapter 5, which talks about God's design for marriage. And one of the most beautiful things about that is, is when God talks to us about marriage, He really only focuses on your role. God's advice to the husband is, do your job. His advice to the wife is, you do your job. And spend less time focused on how the other one's doing their job. You stay focused on what you got to do. And so the beauty of that is you can be a very biblical husband or a very biblical wife with a very bad person in your house. Because you're not here to love them based on what they do. You're here to love them because you love him. You're going to serve them. You're going to honor them. You're going to protect them. You're going to lift them up, not because they deserve it, but because your Savior has asked you to. And every day you do that, Every day you walk that line, you show him how much you love him. You show him how much you appreciate all the sacrifices he has made for you. And so I encourage you, come back Wednesday, please. Because today's passage is a lot more on when marriage goes wrong. Wednesday's is a lot more about when marriage goes right. And so I want you to see both of those sides of the picture. But the big thing for all of us to understand is, is when we come to God and we become His, that's every aspect of us. It's everything. Especially our relationships that we have with other people. Let's go to the Lord of Prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, as your humble servants. Fathers, in these moments that we are reminded of what it means to have you as Lord and us as disciples. It means, Lord, that we open our ears to hear your word and your truth. It means, Lord, that we pursue your will, even when it's hard for us. We do this, Lord, because we know that you are perfect. We know that your wisdom is full of truth. And we know in the end, Lord, that you are fulfilled and moved and passionate about what's good for us. And so, Lord, even in these times where it's hard for us to always listen to what you have to say, we trust you and we will follow you because you are our Lord and you are our Savior. Father, thank you for your wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you will pour your love and your strength into the marriages of the people in this room. And I pray, Lord, for those that aren't married, that they will be seeking you on what it is you wish to do in their lives. Father, we love you, and in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As Maria sings, I'll be up here at the front. Uh, Brother James will be in the back. If there's anything that you'd love to have someone praying with you about, feel free to come forward. Uh, Again, as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during this time, seek us out after. We are here uh, to help you and to guide you and to pray with you throughout these journeys of life. Maria? Let's all stand. Yes.
sin runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you are where you are lord i am free holiness is christ in me Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, so teach my song to rise to you. temptation comes my way when I cannot stand I fall on you Jesus you're my hope and stay Lord I need you oh I need you every hour I need my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. You're my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. My one defense, my Oh God, how I need you. Amen. As always, it's such a blessing to be here with you guys, worshiping the Lord and going through His Word. I pray that you remember a few things. One, if you're a believer, you've been given a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. And trust me, if you're married, you need all those things. Especially my wife. <laughs> Second, you have a mission. That mission is not just to come here and worship. It's to go outside those walls and it's to make disciples that love God and love people. So don't forget that this week. I promise you, if you have your eyes open, you will see throughout the week that God has given you the opportunity to do that work. Don't let it pass you by. I love you all. May you have a great week and may God bless you.